tell jokes. Uh, we got a comedian up here. Uh, welcome to Tri-Cities Church. I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if we've never met, I'd love to shake your hand and hug your neck after service. Get to know you better. Uh, we're, we're continuing our series this morning. We're calling it Too Small to Ignore. Hey, when you came in the door, you should have gotten one of these uh, handouts. Uh, the front of the handout's blank. It has space for you to take notes. Uh, and I believe very firmly, and this is one of the things I always struggled with uh, and still struggle with when I'm in churches and, um, and, I'm, and I'm not preaching, like if I'm in a church and I'm not the one that's speaking, is, um, is being able to focus and to take notes and to allow kind of the things I feel like God is challenging me with while I'm sitting there listening to Scripture uh, to continue those things as I walk out of the door. So I always find it helpful to have something like this to take notes on. Uh, to, re- to write down some of these thoughts. Uh, one, of the way, one of the things I, I like about writing down thoughts is you write down a thought and then you can leave it there knowing that you will remember it because it's written down when you walk out the door and you don't have to dwell on it uh, while you're in here and you can continue to uh, stay focused and allow the scriptures to challenge you throughout the whole uh, message. And, and, uh, and there's always times, even for me, that if I, um, like there's things that come on like light bulbs while I'm up here and I kind of want to pull out my pen and write some stuff down because I know that if I don't write it down now, I will lose it as soon as I walk out the door. Uh, so that's what this is for. On the back, there are questions. Um, really, our, our city groups, our small groups that meet during the week, uh, they use those questions uh, as a part of their study, um, but also they're good for all of us just to uh, go deeper into the message and allow it to continue to challenge us. And this is one of these messages, and all of them, really, um, the, the messages we share at Tri-Cities Church are uh, messages that we believe God will use to challenge us as individuals and as a church uh, to live more faithfully. One other thing, in the seat in front of you, there are... Um, uh, cards that are really just connection cards, ways of connecting here. We'd love to know that you are here. If this is your first time here, you've never filled out one of those cards, we'd love to know you're here. Whatever information you feel comfortable putting on one of those cards. Also, we'd love to join you in prayer with anything uh, that you're going through or experiencing in life. We'd even love to celebrate with you uh, with anything that you're celebrating in your life. Uh, and so on the back of that card, there's um, a space for you to write uh, prayer requests or praise reports or any of that. Uh, and our staff gets together on Monday mornings, and we uh, pray together, and we specifically uh, pray through those cards. And we enjoy hearing, um, we, we enjoy when you share with us what's going on in your life, but we also enjoy hearing how God has um, worked things out, and, um, and even better, how God is not, not necessarily answering our prayers. I always feel like I have to say that when I talk about prayer. Not necessarily answering our prayers, because sometimes we shoot prayers up to heaven as though we know what's best. And we're saying, hey, God, do this, right? Uh, and, um, but sometimes God knows, all the time God knows better than we do. Uh, and, uh, and so there's some prayers that we'll shoot up to heaven and God will shoot them right back down saying, you don't really know what you're asking for. Uh, and so we, we don't always like hearing how God answered prayers the way we asked him to answer them. Uh, but we, we do like to hear how God is growing us through our prayers and through our prayer life because that's, that's really what it's about, right? God already knows what we need before we ask him. Right? He knows better than we do. He's really uh, growing us and growing us closer to him and teaching us how to trust him by handing over the things that we're concerned about to him. And so, hey, if you, if you have anything, just feel free to put it on that cart. You can put it in one of these buckets on the table. Um, those are um, for those cards and for our giving after the message we share in communion. And we have those buckets on the table, and that's how we give at Tri-Cities Church. So at any time 
uh, after the message. You can, you can give in those buckets. You can put your card in those buckets. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's what that was it for. All right, so uh, last week we started this series called Too Small to Ignore. We were looking at Josiah, who became king at eight years old, and Josiah started a revival. Right? He, he read the scriptures to the whole nation, and he stood up boldly and read from the scroll, and the nation changed. And in this series, we're really looking at how God chooses children, and God sees children, and how God doesn't overlook children, and it's because God has chosen to use children as a part of his plan, both in the early years, right, even while they're still children, and when they grow up. We, we saw a quote last week from Wes Safford where he says that children are too important and too intensely loved by God to be left behind or left to chance. And that's the truth. Wes Safford was the president of Compassion International, an organization that specifically cares for children. And, and he got it right, right? There's too important and too intensely loved by God. And we have these records in Scripture and we have records and stories that are happening today of God powerfully using children as a part of his plan. And so uh, this series is all about paying attention to children and what we can do to love children into their purpose in Christ Jesus. Well, this week we're in Exodus chapter 2. We're looking at the story of Moses. So you, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, and let's pray, and then we'll get into our message this morning. God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to gather in this place, to open the Scriptures, knowing that when your Word is open and read, we're in a holy space because this is a space from which you have spoken to your people and continue to speak to your people today. God, I pray that in the story of Moses that you will help us to hear you, that we won't just see it as a good story or well-written story, but that we'll see it as your word spoken to us to challenge us to love the least of these among us, the most vulnerable among us. God, we do thank you for this time. Please give us eyes to see in a fresh new way. It's in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now my, um, <laughs> my, my parents might not admit it, or, or actually they, they probably would admit it, um, but, but I know that I was an oops baby, right? I know that nobody was really uh, planning for a baby boy <laughs> named Wesley. Yep, I'm starting out that way, Mom. <laughs> and there's at, least, there's at least three signs that I am nah, I'm an oops baby, at least three that I can think about, right? Um, the first is my brother and sister are only 11 months apart, right? Nobody does that and says, let's do it again, right? Like, it just doesn't happen. Right? That's just not the way it goes, right? They're, they're 11 months. They're, they're the same age. What do they call it? Irish twins or something like that? Yeah, and nobody, nobody looks at that and goes, hey, let's, let's try that one again. Um, the other, other way that I know uh, that, that I was an oops baby was, was uh, um, so, so, so th at least this is the way I figured it out, and I have yet to be corrected. I may be corrected today. My brother and sister uh, were born at Northside Hospital. Uh, I just had this idea. My parents went out looking for the best doctor that they could find. Uh, and, and they found this doctor, and, and, and my brother and sister were both born there. I was born at South Fulton. 
They was almost like, get this thing out of me. <laughs> Didn't ask for it. Didn't want it. It's got to go. The, the, the third way I know is um, I, was, I was actually at my parents' house, and I was looking at, um, I was looking at baby pictures and, and pictures of my childhood. Man, and I've been a yo-yo dieter since the time I was like five. Like, I'm chubby in one picture, skinny in the next. Chubby in one picture. <laughs> there I go. That was fifth grade right there. <laughs> that was that was fifth grade. Like a little little known fact, right? When I was uh, I was uh, I was either eleven or twelve in that picture, and I, I wanted to play little league football for the first time. I'll never forget this, right? I, I was I was eleven or twelve. I was supposed to play on eleven or twelve year old team, and I would never forget somebody saying in that that um, our kids are afraid of you. Uh, and they made me play 13 and 14, right? They wouldn't let me play with 11, 12. I was a chubby boy. Uh, and and, um, and all throughout my childhood, I was yo-yo dying. I was going up and down, up and down, uh, and, uh, and, and still struggling with that. But, yeah, I, I just know because my, my parents had gotten tired of saying no, right? Want another cookie? Sure. <laughs> Want, can Mom, can I have some chicken? Sure. More ice cream? Have the whole pint. Like, they had exhausted their nose on my brother and sister. If you look at, like, our childhood pictures, they are slim and skinny. My brother almost looked like something was wrong with him. He was so thin. He probably never had a cookie, right? I ate them all. <laughs> like Cookie Monster or something. Um, you know, when my wife and I got married, uh, we, we were on the five-year year plan. Uh, we said we we're going to wait five years to have a child. Uh, you know, we had heard that was a good thing. You know, get to know one another, uh, build a relationship. And, and here we are 10 years this summer. Uh, we, we still don't have kids of our own, biological kids at least. And, and I guess we're on, uh, I, I guess that means we're on God's plan. I guess God has something else in, in store for us. And God has other plans that, that, we're, uh, that we're loving and embracing. In fact, um, when a couple of years ago, actually this month marks, uh, two years that we've been foster parents. And so a couple of years ago, uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago when, when uh, we felt like God was calling us to be uh, foster parents, I was glad when God, God led our hearts in that way because we could see no way that we could make a greater difference than by welcoming somebody else's child into our home and out of an environment that, that might not be healthy for a child or an environment that might not represent Christ and to welcome that child into our home and, and to, uh, for however long to be able to show them the love of Christ. Because what we saw last week is that kids have their whole life ahead of them to make a difference. And we saw no greater way than by welcoming a child into our home. And if we send that child out, we send that child out coming, having and come in contact with the love of Jesus Christ and the ability to live for many more years than, than we will live and make a difference for those years. So, yeah. But when we get into the book of Exodus, what we see there is that the Israelites, um, they were on the every year plan. Um, they were having babies like crazy. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus right there in Exodus chapter 1 in that first chapter and kind of rolling out of Genesis, the story in Genesis is fantastic of Joseph and Joseph's life and how Joseph made his way uh, by God's providence into Egypt. And then when, uh, when Joseph's family, they were not living in Egypt, when the land they were living in fell into famine, how Joseph welcomed his whole family into Egypt. And God is just kind of working this story out 
in a way of saying, I know at times you can't see how I'm involved in your story and the narrative of your life, but I am. And God's like working the story out. And in retrospect, we see it. And um, Joseph welcomes his whole family in Egypt. And it's about 70 of them that move down to Egypt with him. And the Egyptians welcome them with arms wide open into their land because it's 70. What can 70 do? But those 70 are multiplying as they use their every year plan. In fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 6. Listen to what it says. It says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so here you have these 70 that moved to Egypt multiplying and increasing, and so much so that they are outnumbering the Egyptians. And they are multiplying rapidly. Now, the Bible doesn't say how many years this was or what the time span it is. But what we do know is the Egyptians, who used to be in the majority in that land, now are becoming in the minority. And fear is beginning to set in because they're afraid that the, um, the Israelites might join with their enemies and might wage war against them and might take over the Egyptians. And so in the midst of this, right, in the midst of fear, and I believe, you know, all over the Bible, and I heard somebody say this, that the Bible says, do not fear more than anything else. Um, and, and here's one of the reasons I believe the Bible says do not fear often, right, is, is because God knows that when we fear, we tend to do dumb things, right? Uh, some of the stupidest decisions that we've made in our lives come out of a place of fear. We make irrational, quick decisions. And so here Pharaoh is fearing because these few people that came to Egypt are now becoming the majority, and he doesn't know what's going on. He's like, I don't know what that means. Uh, I know they can join our enemies. I know they can go, all, go off and wage war against us. And so he makes the dumbest decision, at least up until that point, because he makes... He makes a series of other ones, but he makes the dumbest decision of his life in that moment. If you look in, in verse 8, listen to what it says. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so here they are. They're fearful that they're going to fight against them, destroy everything they've worked so hard to build. And then they're going to pack up their bags and they're going to move on and they're going to conquer more territory. And so he decides to deal shrewdly with them, which means he forced them into slavery, forced them to labor. In fact, if you look in verse the very next verse, verse, um, verse 11, it says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So they forced them into hard labor, forcing them to work for them. And, and, um, and they, they missed out on, 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 on something. Um, at least he, he made an irrational decision. Uh, because, um, because in a world uh, without uh, birth control uh, methods, modern birth control methods that we have today, you name it, in a world without birth control, hard labor doesn't stop anybody from having babies. Uh, and so they continued to multiply. Somehow he thought by forcing them into labor that they were going to stop having babies. That, has ne that still never happens. People can work hard. <laughs> Amen. 
People can work the hardest job imaginable, and they still going to pop out some babies. That's just the way it goes. Life is hard. Life is stressful. Uh, and, and babies still come. And so Pharaoh's logic in the midst of his fear just wasn't lining up. It wasn't making any sense. Look at uh, verse 12. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly, uh, as though working them harder was going to stop this thing from happening. Um, and so their fear increased. Because the Israelites continued to multiply. And so Pharaoh makes the second, um, at least dumb decision that we were told about in Scripture, a decision that was worse than the first one, and that is that he chooses to kill the baby boys. And so he tells the midwives in Ship, Ship, is it Shipra and Pua, uh, who are named here in Exodus chapter 1, he tells, the, tells them to kill the babies as they're being born. And they refuse to do that. Um, and then he tells his people to begin drowning the babies in the Nile. This is, um, this is one of the lowest points of depravity I think we see in Scripture. Of um, human morality being pushed down to its lower levels, lowest levels, by fear, anxiety, and refusal to turn to God. And there's part of me that, and yeah, there's part of me that wants to look at this story and look at Pharaoh and say, I mean, of course there's a part of me that wants to look at that story and say, I could never be like him. Um, but, but what we see throughout history is that societies can turn and people can make poor decisions that spiral out of control when they are not trusting God and they're allowing fear to take the steering wheel of their lives. And they're allowing fear and bad decision-making and irrational decisions to begin steering their lives. And this story, at least at this point, causes me to back up just a little and pay a little bit closer attention to those scriptures where God says, do not fear. Because fear is, and we've talked about this before, it's a natural human emotion. It's common to all of us. It happens without us making a decision to be afraid. God knows that. Like, so God's not going, okay, you got afraid in that moment. So I'm, and, and God's not disappointed with us over that. But God's going, um, every time you face fear, right, every time you get afraid, every time you worry, the Bible says be anxious for nothing, right? Every time you find anxiety beginning to creep up within you, you begin to push that down with the word of God, right? You begin to push fear back with the word of God, and you declare God's promises to you, and you um, spend moments in prayer allowing God to do what he's done for his people for generation upon generation is he's allowed, um, they've allowed God to become for them their courage, God to become for them their boldness, God to become for them, their strength. We see that all throughout Scripture is that there are people who are trusting God, and as a result of that, they are doing impossible things because God has become for them what they need in that moment. That's the grace of God. 
bits for all of us. And so in this story, in the midst of all this craziness uh, and Pharaoh's bad decisions and the power uh, that he's using over the Israelites, in the midst of all this craziness, Moses is born. In fact, Moses' mother, after giving birth to Moses and knowing his fate from the time she was pregnant, um, made one of the hardest decisions that a mother should never have to make. In fact, if you read in Exodus chapter 2, it picks up with this story of Moses' birth. It says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And so this mother, uh, Jochebed is her name. The scriptures don't list it here. And in fact, oftentimes the names of women are left out of scriptures because in that world, they just didn't place as much emphasis on women as we do in our society. And, and so I, I just want to honor her by, by calling her name and saying her name is Jochebed. And so Jochebed, Moses' mother, chose to make this decision, to, to make this basket and to coat it so it would be waterproof and place it along the banks of the Nile where all kinds of um, wild animals like crocodiles and things like that lived and, and to take this baby and to say, and, and the Bible, this is the hard thing I struggled with in this section of, of this scripture is the Bible doesn't really give us her purpose, right? It would be nice if the Bible said an, a, an angel appeared to Jochebed and said, make a basket and put your baby boy in it and place it and I will protect. The Bible doesn't really say any of that. The Bible doesn't tell us what she was thinking or what she was going through or really what her plan was in doing this. The, the Bible only lets us know that Pharaoh was out to get every baby boy and Jochebed knew that she had to do something to save her baby. And I imagine this mother, oh man, with uh, incredible, overwhelming sadness, weaving this basket slowly, knowing that she had to do something and not quite knowing what that something would be. I imagine this mother kneeling down at the banks of the Nile River with that basket and, and saying to God, God, I'm trusting this child's future into your hands. And I imagine that baby being soaking wet, not from the Nile, but from the tears that were falling from her eyes as she left her child there on the banks of the Nile. You know, the incredible thing of this story is that Jochebed, wanting her baby to live and survive, went through desperate means. She had to let go. She left her child there, but that child was never left alone by God. Although Jochebed left her there, God never left that child's side because that's just how God works. In fact, when we look throughout history, here's one of the things that we see over and over again. Sometimes it's when we get to the point of having done all that we can do that God does his best work. 
Because often it's at those points that we begin packing up our stuff and we get out of God's way and we're no longer obstructing what God wants to do in this world. Because I find myself, and I don't know about y'all, maybe I'll stand here and I'll say I'm the only one. But uh, I find myself trying to figure things out in my life by my own means, my own plans, my own intelligence, what little bit there may be, my own way of strategizing. I try to figure these things out. And when I fail, then finally I find myself saying, all right, I guess I'll trust God. That's just a human tendency, right? And God wants to be the first one we trust. He wants us to get out of the way from day one. He wants us to say, God, I trust you. This child is in your hands from the day he's born to the day he dies, right? Not that a situation forced me to the bank of the Nile to let go and trust in the power of God. You see, often it's when we get to the end of what we can do that we trust God, and God wants us to trust him first. And in this story, God does incredible things. In fact, Moses' sister, who was sitting there watching, stood at a distance. And one of Pharaoh's daughters, now remember, Pharaoh's kind of like the king. He's the one in charge. He's the one who had ordered all the boys to be killed. Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby. And when she kind of stumbles along this child at the banks, on the banks of the Nile, she, she immediately falls in love with this child. And she takes him home to be her own. But, but here's the problem, right? In biblical times, there's no, there's no way field that you can go to and buy formula, right? Um, that, it's just, there's just not, no way of doing that. So that she needed someone to nurse this child. And here they are, all these mothers in the Hebrew camp who had lost their children. And she sent Moses' sister to find someone to nurse this baby Moses' sister goes and finds her mother, Moses' mother, Jochebed, and gets her to nurse this baby. And get this, Pharaoh pays her, Pharaoh's daughter pays her to do it. And so here we have God working out this story in only a way that God could, in a way that seemed that it would end tragically, a way that it was seen with this child losing his life by either being thrown in the Nile or being eaten by a crocodile on the side of the Nile. Like in one of those two ways, that was this child's future. But when Jochebed let go and trusted God, placed that baby there, God did incredible things beyond what she could imagine. In fact, I feel like if we could know the plans of God that God had for us, our minds would be blown. We would not be able, I mean, I, I, sometimes I feel like if God revealed all the plans and all the things that he wants to and could do through our lives, that it would be crippling, right? The fear would be overwhelming. The feeling of inadequacy would be overwhelming. The feeling of what God is able to do through our lives when we give him a yes would just not be something that we could comprehend. And so for Jochebed, God never revealed the ABCs of his, plan, or of his plan for Moses. She just had to trust God and let go and believe that God's providence and God's way is sufficient. Now, I imagine with this Moses story, um, I'm, I imagine that Moses, like, I mean, just, just think about this, right? All these baby boys, Moses' age, were being killed. Um, and Moses grew up with this story of his survival, 
through a difficult time and um, probably had few friends that looked like him. Um, and maybe all throughout his life, he's asking that question, why me? Why did, why did God save me? Because God never reveals to him uh, the, the, his plan until it's like, until it's time to go, like, until it's go time. And I, and I love the way that happens because, yeah, when God reveals his plan to us way before, sometimes we'll worm our way out of it, right? So he didn't reveal his plan for Moses until it was go time. And get this, Moses was 80 years old when God appeared to him speaking out of a burning bush and called him to go and set his people, the Israelites, free from slavery in the name of God. Moses was 80 years old. And so, so God's purpose in saving him wasn't for tomorrow, right? It wasn't for the next day. It wasn't for the day after that. It wasn't for 20 years later. God's purpose in saving him and the work that God had set aside for him wasn't to be fulfilled till he was 80 years old. And the whole time God is preparing him for this. The whole time God is grooming him for this. And so sometimes we look and so we say, I, I, you know, maybe you say, I, I'm too old or my purpose is, is long past or I'm beyond the point where God would use me in a powerful way. Moses was 80 years old. And what we see in this story is that God has a plan and God's plan has no time limits on it. God has a plan and God's limit plan isn't hindered by the mistakes we've made or the things we've done wrong. God has a plan, and there's absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of God's plan for you except you saying, I won't go. Moses was 80 years old. He was too small to ignore when he was born. He wasn't left behind or overlooked by God when he was born because God said, I can use him. What we begin to see in Scripture is that we have a God who is pro-life from womb to tomb. A God that has a plan for every life from the moment it's in the womb until the point that it's placed in the tomb. In fact, we got this scripture in Psalm chapter uh, 139 um, that's just so powerful where uh, David is reflecting about, uh, on God's knowledge of him. And just listen to what he says. And even um, take this and think this over your own life, right? Uh, listen to what it says in verse 13. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully May your works are wonderful, I know full well. Let me, just, let me just pause there. Because David wasn't saying this. <laughs> like David wasn't looking in a mirror going, your works are wonderful, God. <laughs> like he wasn't flexing biceps and comb, flipping his hair back, that kind of thing, right? Um, sometimes we look at this and we go like, that, David could do that, but not me. Like I'm... I'm broken, I'm flawed, I'm, in, I'm inadequate. I, 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 I don't know what God was thinking. Right? Sometimes this self-doubt and negative self-talk creeps in. In Psalm 139, man, it's like push that back, right? You are wonderful and made the way God 
created you to be. Period. And so David looks at his life and he says, I praise you, God. When was the last time you praised God for the way God made you to be? I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know full well my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He says, God, you had a plan for me while I was still in the womb, while you were knitting me together, while you were shaping me to be the person you called me to be, you had a plan for me. And I think we can read that scripture over our lives. It was true for Moses, and it's true for us. You see, never at one point in Moses' life was he overlooked or left behind by God. Never at any point in our lives are we overlooked or left behind by God. God sees you. God knows your story. And God goes, "Uh uh-huh, I can use her. Uh Uh-huh, I can use him. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, I see how broken he is. Yeah, I can use him. I see how many wrongs she's done. Yeah, I can use her, right? God's looking at your life and saying, that does not ruin my plan for you. Just like the many mistakes that surely Moses made didn't ruin God's plan for him. He was 80 years old. He had lived some some life. And God's going, hey, I can use him. You know, as we read this story and we see this God who's pro-life from womb to tomb, it challenges the church that if we're going to be a church that follows God, we must be pro-life from womb to tomb. We must be willing to stand up for babies that are in the womb. We must raise our voices for babies who are in the womb. We must not buy into, and this is so easy in our society, we must not buy into the idea that a vote is the only voice that we have. God has given us a different voice. It's a gospel voice. It's a voice of concern. It's a voice that's willing to go out into this world and let mothers and fathers know the love of Jesus Christ, which transforms us and causes us to have life with a different kind of hope and to turn and walk away from decisions that would end life and to walk into decisions that give life. God has given us the freedom, the ability to be those people that stand up for the lives of children, not just our own, but the lives of children in our community. God has given us a voice, a gospel voice. That is a voice that is equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed our lives. And with the belief that no life is too far from God to be transformed. It's a voice that we believe is so powerful that we become eager when we recognize it to leave places like this and come face to face with people who have not yet come to belief in the power of the gospel and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives, to become eager to encounter those people on our day-to-day goings so that they might become 
convinced that Jesus really did raise from the dead so that we might have life and have it abundantly, so that we might be transformed, so that we might give life and be concerned about young children. You see, God is a pro-life God who's concerned about life from womb to tomb. And we, the church, we, the church, cannot be a community that turns a blind eye. We, the church, cannot be a community um, that judges, that judges others based on the decisions that they're making. We, the church, must be a community that is eager to see people accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ that is transformative because it is the only method for lasting and sustainable change in our world. We can pass laws. We can vote. We can raise our voice in that way. But until we are eager to see people accept Jesus Christ and to see them go through the process of sanctification and the transformation that happens when we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior that alters the way we make our decisions, that takes fear out of the driver's seat and puts Christ there, until we become a community that's eager to do that, then we aren't following a God who's pro-life from womb to tomb. You see, God has a plan for every human life. And we need to stand up for the least of these. We must stand up for the least of these. God is also pro-life for these Babies, when they come out of the womb and into our world, that are still vulnerable. And in fact, in our neighborhood, and I didn't even want to do statistics, the statistics are depressing, right? There are all kinds of ills. There's children that are living in dire situations that are facing all kinds of pain and homelessness and hunger in our communities, in our city, right? It's happening right here under our nose. There's um, sex trafficking that's happening in our community. There's kids that aren't getting an education in our community. There's kids that are dropping out of schools in our community. There's kids that are being abused in our community. There's kids that aren't going home to save homes in our community. After they come out of the womb into the womb, God's plan doesn't end there. God still has a plan for these kids' lives. God is fighting for them, and the church must fight for them as well. It's the reason why we as a church who are concerned for kids have things like our defects uh, ministry, ministry to defect social workers. It's the reason why we're adopting Paul D. West Middle School and we're going to welcome them into our building on May 17th with their gospel choir. It's the reason why we're going to support them and write letters of encouragement to them and, and be there for them however they need us to be. It's the reason why we started a foster care ministry here at Tri-Cities Church because we want to see more and more parents getting out there and taking care of these kids that are being overlooked and left behind and left up to chance because we know as Psalms 139 says, God has a plan for them and his plan is good. And if there's a God that's fighting 
a God that's pro-life from womb to tomb, then surely his church must be as well. You see, God has called the church to be a champion for children, a champion for all children, not just our own children, but all children. In fact, in James chapter 1, um, verse 26, there's a passage that's, it was stinging, stinging for the church that heard it first, and it should sting a little bit for us today too. Listen to what it says. It says, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans, the least of these, the most vulnerable among us, and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The church's role is to see where there's neglect, to see where there's pain, to see where there's hurting and where there's brokenness among the least of these, and to run into those spaces and to be the change that God wants to see in this world, to be hope in this world, to bring about transformation. You know, this morning I was thinking, and I, I haven't quite fully processed this thought, um, but I was, I was just thinking about the way we go through life. And as we go through life, we set all kinds of goals. You know, I want to get a master's degree, or I want to purchase a home, or, or I want to purchase a new home, or I want to raise or better job. I want a new car. I want to lose weight. I want to, I mean, we, we have all these lists of wants, and we're people that sometimes set goals on paper, and sometimes they're just in our head. Um, we're, we're people that have desires for things that we choose to pursue. Here's what the scriptures were challenging me with just this morning. Is that if we believe that we are a community, if we're choosing to be a community that puts God first, then God's dreams must become our dreams. And God's ambitions must become our ambitions. And the passion with which God operates in this world on behalf of his children must become our passion. And so our goals must be shaped by the gospel and our goals must be shaped by God taking care of the least of these in our society, the most vulnerable, because we have a God that is pro-life from womb to tomb. And he cares for those who are unable to take care of their own needs. And we as a church must be willing to care for those who are not able to take care of their own needs as well. As we come to the four tables around this room, we do this every 
week um, for communion. Um, you know, there's something that's creeping up in me. Um, even as I talk about this, there's something that's creeping up in me that's going, not my responsibility. I didn't make that child. There, there's something in me that, man, even in my own neighborhood, in my own house, I look out the window and I see children and there's something in me that goes, his mother needs to, his father needs to, not my responsibility, not my child. There's something that wants to creep in side of me that wants to say, I'm not responsible for that child. But there's a God that goes, I'm responsible for that child. And there's a God that goes, on the cross, I took responsibility for you. There's a God that's like saying that message to us. Like, I wasn't responsible to die for you. <laughs> it wasn't my role to go to the cross. You see, the scriptures are constantly remind us reminding us that we have a God that stepped in for us. And every time there's that desire within me is backing myself out of a situation, man, I need to put that at the forefront. I need to write that one down on my paper. There's a God that stepped in for me. And so it may not be my responsibility, but it's now my responsibility in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to gather in this place and to hear your word, which is hard for us, which calls us to do things that don't make sense, which is to take responsibility for children that are not our own and to show them your love, to embrace them with the embrace of Jesus Christ that they may come to know him as their Lord and Savior and may live all of their lives knowing him and making a difference in this world because of him. God, we thank you that children aren't overlooked by you or left behind or left to chance, but they're embraced by you and that you're fighting for them. God, I pray that you help us as a church to see ways that we can fight for them as well. Knowing that you're able to do amazing things as you did through Moses, through them. And God, we want to see your plan fulfilled in this world. God, as we come to these tables for communion, please remind us that you did for us what you didn't have to do. You weren't guilty of doing wrong. You didn't have to die on the cross. The wages of sin was, is death, and it's our death, the death we deserve. But God, you stepped in on our behalf. And out of gratitude, God, I pray that you will move us to step in on behalf of others. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.